The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Today's scripture reading will be coming out of 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1 through 20. If you would like to follow along, there's Bibles around your seats, and there will also be on the screen behind me. There was a certain man of Rathiam, Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jophim, son of Elahu, son of Tohu, son of Zoph, and Emperite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? I am... Not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed and vowed, she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on to, on, sorry, if you will indeed look on the affliction, affliction, of your servant, and remember me, and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No drunk, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor drink, nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you had made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated.
So as the book of 1 Samuel opens, not only is there a lot of like really difficult to pronounce names right off the bat, obviously, but uh, as it opens, Israel is really in a dark time. So what we normally do at Doxa is we normally preach through books of the Bible, and we normally will do an Old Testament book and then a New Testament book, and we'll bounce back and forth. And so uh, the last time we were actually in an Old Testament book was about a year and a half ago, Dale. Uh, we were in Luke and Acts together as one series, because Luke wrote both Luke, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts uh, together as part one and part two, and now we're back in the Old Testament. Now, the last time, many of you weren't here, but the last time we were in the Old Testament, we were in Exodus, and that's where uh, God led the Israelites out of Egypt in slavery through Moses. He leads them through the, uh, through the wilderness, and at the end, we're looking at them going into the promised land. And so what's happened between there, 18 months ago, when we were in uh, the Old Testament in Exodus, and now is about 400 years or so have passed. Joshua Uh, Moses dies and Joshua leads the Israelites into the promised land, into the land of Israel as it became became to be known as Israel. And then Joshua dies and then we have a period that's called the the period of the judges. Uh, It's in the book of Judges, which is one book before this. If you skip back over Ruth, uh, it's really the book that came... uh, right before this in terms of chronological order in the uh, in book order in the Jewish Old Testament. And uh, what happens in the book of Judges is really summed up in the last verse of the book of Judges in chapter 21, verse 25. Uh, the book of Judges, by the way, if I don't know what you think about the Bible. If you picture like uh, like cute little like Bible stories and like you decorate your kids with like cute little like Noah and the ark scenes. And, but the Bible is like really gritty and really like there's some crazy stuff that happens up in here. And if you read the book of Judges, you'll see some crazy things happen. And this is the way the book of Judges ends. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And you have years and years and generations of that happening, uh, then things get pretty dark. And so when, as the book opens and we see Hannah and Elkanah or Elkanah, their family together, the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel, we're in the middle of the Israel's dark age. It's, so not only have people done what is right in their own eyes, so they've like, it's been like, it's been like, mar- it's, it's been like, it's like, it's been everybody making their own law. Everybody doing their own thing, what seemed right to them for a long time. And there's been rulers that had cropped up in like times of crisis who would lead the, the nation of Israel, but then they would pass away and the Israel would go back to just being rudderless and doing their own thing. For 400 years that has gone on. Israel doing what is each person doing what was right in their own eyes. And God hasn't spoken, or at least they haven't heard God speak since the time of Moses and Joshua. 400 years have passed since the Israel's, since Israelites have heard God speak to them in a very clear, prophetic way. And that's the way the book opens. Israel, everybody's doing their own thing, everybody making their own law, doing the deal. And here's the tricky thing about that, is if if everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes, they don't even know that they're wrong because they're doing what's right in their own eyes. They're deceived. And that's what happens to us, right? When we go about in our life and we're doing what is right in our own eyes, and that's what our society tells us. Our culture and our society tells us that don't let anybody else tell you what is right and what is wrong. 
You get to determine what is right for yourself, yourself. You get to run your own race. You get to set your own rules. You get to do whatever is right in your own eyes. And the problem with that is you can barrel through life doing what is right in your own eyes and you never realize that you're being deceived. You never realize that you're in darkness. And isn't that even scarier than being in darkness? It's being in darkness and not even realizing just how dark it is. Being lost and not realizing that you're lost. That's how the book of 1 Samuel opens. And really, when you think about it, it's kind of how we live in our society. The book of Samuel opens, Israel has everything, all the forms still in place that Moses and Joshua gave them. They have the law, the Bible. They have the priests. They have the tabernacle, which is where God's presence dwells. They have the Ark of the Covenant, which contains the book of the law that God gave Moses. And it's supposed to contain God's very presence in the middle of Israel. Israel still has the law, the priest, the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant right there in the middle of Israel. And everybody is going about looking, uh, doing the form of religion. But they're only missing one thing, God. And that's incredibly sad to me. It reminds me, I think it, one of the stories that sums up the book of Judges is when it says that Samson didn't realize that the Spirit of God had departed from him. And he rose to defeat the Philistines like he had every other time, and he realized he's gone. And that's where Samuel opens. And I don't think that's really too far from where we are in our society. How many churches did you pass on your way to drive here to this school? Isn't that kind of ironic? Probably you're, you're passing by church buildings in order to go to church at a school. But how many churches did you pass in order to get here? And there are Bible-believing, God-loving Christians in probably almost all of those churches. But how much of a difference are we really making in our culture and in our society? Does Myrtle Beach at large really even know that we're here other than the buildings? And other than when somebody does something wrong and we raise a ruckus about it. We have the forms, but oftentimes we're missing that, that one thing. The presence of God himself in our midst. That causes us to live such a different life that we look and we sound different than a normal person. And we live a life that has that fragrance and that flavor of, having some, of someone having been with God. The lives can look very similar from the outside, but the difference is a world of difference. So as we go through the book of 1 Samuel, we're going to see one of the things is that as sad as it is that we go our own way and we often make our own rules and do what is right in our own eyes, that God keeps us, he cares for us, he guides us and guides events, often in spite of us for his glory. But whenever he finds a servant who is willing to give him everything, all of a sudden, it can be a game changer. And we're going to see that today in the beginning of the story of Hannah, which we're going to spend the next two weeks on. We're going to look at 
a couple of things this morning, three points about Hannah. One is, uh, well, here's our big idea that we're going to deal with this morning. And there's a lot of pronouns in this, and I may regret using this as our big idea this morning, but this is, this is what it is. Our big idea is our one big thing can become God's big thing when we make it his thing. I know there's a lot of things in there, right? But just stick with me. There's a reason that we're doing this or we're going here. Our one big thing can become God's big thing when we make it his thing, all right? You guys excited to see where that's gonna go? All right, let's go. What was, well, first of all, let's see, verses one through eight, what was Hannah's big thing? So we start off with these names that I'm not gonna pronounce because he already did it for us. Of the, uh, in, the, in the middle of Israel, the book of Samuel starts off with a man named Elkanah or Elkanah, and he's married to two women, Hannah and Peninnah. That's how the book starts. Just a normal family. Verse three. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. So the Shiloh is where God's tabernacle was. Remember we said that's where God's presence was, that's where the ark was. So people would go to uh, Shiloh once a year, the people who were observant, who were trying to worship God, they would go to Shiloh once a year and they would offer sacrifices there. And then the cool thing would be that some of the sacrifices that you gave to God would be burned and then some would be handed back to you. And then you would have a feast with those sacrifices. And it was a big deal because uh, Israelites didn't eat much meat, which was very expensive because that's where your, your money was in your livestock. And so you wouldn't kill them very often. It was, you just go to the grocery store and buy some steak or some hamburger. It was a big deal to be able to have meat. And so whenever you would have meat and you'd have a feast, it was a really big deal. It was a party like we're gonna have today. They didn't have barbecue, but I would hope they would have fried chicken and some other things around there. So they, they would have a, a feast at the time that they sacrificed to the Lord. So that's where they are. Now, on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, or we don't know exactly what that means. He, did, he gave her something special, a special portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival, that's Peninnah, used to provoke her, that's Hannah, grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. (laughs) Now, this is a, you can picture this. And for any woman who wants to conceive but can't, it's a big deal. There's some of us here that are in that situation or have been in that situation. It's a heartbreaking thing. In ancient Israel, it was an even bigger deal because the main purpose that you had as a woman that that society saw from the outside was to provide heirs for yourself and your husband. And if you couldn't provide an heir or heirs for yourself and your husband, then you were deemed invaluable as a wife. And so it's a really big deal, first of all, that Elkanah loved Hannah enough that when she didn't provide him an heir, that he still loved her and cared for her. He showed her uh, the, the, a special, a special uh, level of devotion and care for her. That's a, that's a pretty cool deal. But for Hannah, it would have been a huge deal if she couldn't be able to conceive and bear a son if she was barren. 
Now, the interesting thing about this is that Hannah had a good life. As Israelites go, she was a member of a pretty wealthy man, Elkanah. We know from, his, from the, the, the genealogy that they give for him that he was a fairly wealthy, well-off man that lived in the country. So he was probably a big farmer out in the country. And so she was a rural woman, but she lived a pretty comfortable life with a respected husband. She had her health. She had a husband who was, uh, could provide for her and loved her. She had a pretty decent life. But there was just one thing, just one thing in her life, just one thing that stood over her that was a burden on her. She couldn't bear a child. She couldn't just not bear a son. She couldn't bear a child. And this one thing was the one thing that she just couldn't shake. She couldn't get away from it. Think about it, every morning, I don't know how they did meals, but every morning or every evening, or when she would see uh, her rival, the other wife of Elkanah, going to the well or sitting at the table, or maybe she had to actually help babysit Peninnah's children, or maybe she had to help deliver Peninnah's children. Every time she would see her, and every time she would see her multiple children, it would be a reminder to her, you were not able to bear a child. You are not able to bear a child. You are less than. You are lower than. Sure, you are loved. Sure, you are comfortable. Surely, you are well off. Sure, you have your health. But this one thing is the one thing that she just could never shake. She could never get away from. She had that one thing was an issue. It was a problem for her. It was her great problem. And day after day, week after week, year after year, penniless child after penniless child, she was reminded, I am less than, I am not enough. God, what is going on with me? Do you hate me? Did I do something wrong? What is going on? Now, the interesting thing to that is that, that people from the outside didn't understand what a big problem it was. Now, when I say problem, I mean, like it was a big problem for her. If it were a generation or two ago when I was in church, I could say, uh, I could say Hannah had a burden, and you guys would know what I meant. You would say, mm-hmm, that's right, she had a burden. You would say, amen, we would know what it meant for you to, you would, that she had a burden that weighed her down. Do you know what it means to have a burden? Something, that one thing in your life that weighs you down, that somebody from the outside looks into your life and they say, hey, you're healthy, you're married, or you got kids, or hey, I'm married and I don't want to be, you're not married, or you should be happy, or, or you, whatever the thing is, they look on your life and they say, man, you should be happy, you should be okay, but that one thing is the one thing for you that continually weighs you down. You feel it like a weight on your shoulders, a weight on your back, that though it looks on the outside like you're walking upright, that you're walking bent down under the weight of your burden, your one thing. And the thing is that people from the outside can't always understand what that one thing means to you. Uh, Elkanah, her loving husband, comes to her and in a statement that's, bless his heart, is a, a loving statement, but he like, is a statement that I've probably given to Megan hundreds of times where she's burdened and she has a deal that she's dealing with and I come to her and I, and I try to make her feel better by saying something that just makes it worse. Hannah, what's wrong with you? Why are you sad? Aren't I, don't you love me as much as if you had seven sons? And her answer is, 
No, that's not enough. I love you. You're a great husband. I love all that you do for me, but you're not sons. You're not children. You loving me doesn't make me not barren anymore. And he thinks like, hey, I just want you to feel value. Your value doesn't rise or fall in my eyes. And whether you bore me a son or not, I still love you. But that doesn't change the fact that for her, it is a giant burden. Her one thing torments her. The people who are outside looking in, they don't, they don't see and understand because it's not their one big thing. They have their own thing that they're dealing with. But they don't see your one thing and feel it the way that you feel it. It tormented her and it tormented, she was tormented by the other wife, by Peninnah. Think about how that happened. You know how people can be. Like you, you, you would gather, it says that year by year as they would gather for the feast. So you can imagine like they're setting the table, Penina and all her kids. And maybe one of Penina's kids asked her like, hey, where, where's Hannah's kids? Why aren't they here? And she's like, hey, maybe you have to ask Hannah why her kids aren't here. I don't know. She hasn't been able to have kids. God's blessed me with all you loving faces. And she didn't get, he didn't bless her with anybody. Maybe you'll have to ask her. Maybe it's little, little digs and reminders. Oh, Hannah, I hope you won't mind we're taking up this whole table because me and all of my brood are taking up this table. I hope you won't mind sitting over here. All these little ways that she would needle her and torment her and week by week, year after year, it's wearing, it's beating on Hannah. What's your one big thing? What's your thing that when maybe people from the outside look in, they say, man, it looks like you have everything together. You're smart, you're good looking, you're married, you drive that car, you live in that house, you got fashion style like Dale, like you, you got it together. Why would anybody have a reason to complain? You have no bills, but that's that one thing for you that wears on you. It might be something that's happened to you in your past. It might be that the fact that you can't bear children or haven't been able to so far. You're not married and you want to be. You're still married and you don't want to be. Your finances can never get straight. Your education, you're not educated as you wish you were. You don't have the job that one promotion, like you've done okay in your, in your career, but that one promotion eludes you. Maybe you were abused in the past and you can never shake it. And it hangs over every relationship you have. That one thing that for you just continually torments you and it seems like everything in life reminds you that you're not good enough. You don't measure up. Maybe God doesn't love you like he loves everybody else. Maybe you're the stepchild. What is your one thing and then how do you deal with it? That's the turning point of this story is we see how Hannah dealt with it. But how do you deal with it? 
Do you try to ignore it, pretend it's not there, and then it creeps up on you suddenly? Do you try to hide it so don't let other people know where your weakness is? You try to put up a brave face? Do you downplay it? Ah, it's not a big deal, though inside you know it's a huge deal. Do you try to, is it substances that you try to, or television or mindless entertainment or buying things or going on trips, that anything to drown out that incessant yelling and bellowing inside your soul, this one thing, you're not good enough. You don't measure up. Maybe God doesn't love you like he loves everybody else because you don't have this one thing. Do you fight it? Is the story of your life you consistently trying to fight this one thing that burdens you? Maybe you felt like growing up like you were less than and nobody really cared for you or you, couldn't, you wouldn't really measure up. Maybe your dad or your mom or somebody said that to you. My, my dad's dad told my dad that. And my, the story of my dad's life is, try, is, is fighting and then succumbing to what his dad told him, you're never gonna measure up in your life because nobody in our family ever measures up. And the story of your life is trying to scratch and claw yourself away from that truth. And then finally resigning yourself to it and you go into a, a deep, deep hole. What is your one thing and what do you do with it? Let's see what Hannah does with it. In verse 8, no, sorry, in verse 9, it says that after they had eaten, so this is they had the feast and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting by the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Now, Eli is going to come and play into the story of 1 Samuel pretty prominently for the first few chapters. Eli is the high priest in this time of Israel, and he is not a good high priest. He is not a good pastor. He is, kind of keeps the forms in place, but his, his relationship with God is simply formal. He has no personal relationship with God, it seems. And his sons are abusing the people that they have authority over. They're actually abusing sexually the women that they have charge over. And Eli knows about it and doesn't have the guts to put a stop to it. He doesn't have the guts to tell his own sons no. So not a great dude who is the priest. Verse 10 she, that's Hannah, was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. The, the wording here in the original language is, is, full of, is full of emotion. She was brokenhearted, deeply distressed. It doesn't really convey how, how well, the depths of her soul, how she was how she was pushed down and beaten down, she wept bitterly to the Lord. See, this is the cool thing about Hannah. One of the cool things is in a very cool story is that Hannah can't hide her burden anymore. It's gotten to the point that she can't ignore it. She can't downplay it. She can't fight it anymore. She has succumbed to understand that this is my one big thing. And then the, the real breakthrough comes when she says, I will take this to the Lord and I will pour it out before him. 
She was deeply distressed. She wept bitterly. In verse 15, it tells us that when she talks to Eli, she says, I've been pouring out my soul. The picture there is actually taking something that's valuable and you actually pour it out of the container. I'm taking my soul and I'm pouring it out before the Lord. I'm letting it all hang out. I'm being as real as I possibly can with him. She was deeply distressed. And she took that to the Lord. She prayed to the Lord. In verse 11, and she vowed a vow. Now, this is a really big deal because this is the only example we have in Scripture of a woman vowing a vow. She came in and she understood, hey, God, this is something that has been going on. It is weighing me down. It is my one big thing, and I'm pouring it out to you. I'm letting you know just how terrible this has been, how distressed, how bitter I am, how my soul, I'm pouring out my soul to you. I'm weeping before you, and I'm telling you, God, if anything is going to happen, it has to be by you, and I promise you, if you will move, I will keep my vow to you. And this is the vow, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me. Now, why is she saying remember me? Because God doesn't forget, right? Because God is incapable of forgetting something. She's saying remember me in, in terms of looking at me favorably. She's understanding I don't bring anything to the table to convince you to do this thing, God. How many times do we try to barter with God? We want to have a child. We want to get married. We want a house. We want money. We want a new job. We want whatever the thing is that we want. We want to get over this past hurt, and we try to barter with God. God, if you will do this, I will bring this. That's not what her vow is. It's not bartering. It is understanding I need you to look to me favorably in grace if anything's going to happen. Because there's nothing I can do that will cause your hand to move. But I need you to look at me in favor and forget not your servant. But if you, but, well, if you will give to your servant a son, and this is where it changed, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor shall touch his head. She says, God, if you will give this thing to me, if you will change this one big thing for me, I'll give it back to you. And that's where many of us trip up. Because the real reason that we want that one big thing that we want is because we think it's going to fill the hole deep inside our souls. And sometimes God won't let you have that one thing because he knows if you get that, you will, th you will think, because it will feel like a patch over that deep hole, you will think that it has filled it, and you will run far away from him and ruin yourself. I knew for about a decade before we planted Doxa that I was called to help plant a church. It was the only thing I wanted I remember if you played that game, like if you asked people like, hey, if, if you had all the money in the world and all the time in the world, what would you do with your life? And people answer like, you know, I would travel or I would do this, do this or do that. And I'm a very boring person, I guess. My answer was, I would plant a church. And I would plant a church that would go and plant other churches. If money and time were no object, that's all that I would do with my life. 
But for a decade, God wouldn't let that happen for me. Because he knew that it was something, it was some, out of something other than just a pure motivation. I wanted to plant a church partially because I felt I was called, but also in some hidden resources, recesses of my soul, I wanted to plant a church because I believed it would make me feel significant. That if people came to hear me preach, then I would feel like I was something. If I planted a church that grew to some size, then I would feel good about myself. God won't let you have those kind of requests. It's not till the, the thing in your heart changes from saying, God, I, would you take this one big thing away or would you give me this one big thing I'm asking to saying, God, if you will look on me in favor and do this, I'll give it back to you. It came from you and I will turn it back to you. Think of how hard that would be for her to actually say and mean. If you'll give me a child, as soon as he's weaned, I'll bring him back to you and he'll be yours. Look on your servant and remember me. Where did Hannah get the the wherewithal and the, the motivation to actually even pray this to the Lord? In a time that was dark where Eli, the great religious leader of his day, is letting his sons sexually exploit women. And whenever he sees Hannah in a minute praying in the temple, right now when he sees her praying inside, he thinks she's drunk. So it's not unusual for somebody to come to Shiloh, sacrifice, have a party and get drunk and just be like, turn it into like another kind of party. And yet, where does she get this? I think she got it from seeing what God had done through the Israelites. Whenever he came to them when they were in slavery and he said that their cries had come before him and he provided Moses to deliver them and provided powerful miracles so that the most powerful country in the world and the most powerful man of the time would release these slaves and let them go. It's the same sort of feeling that you get in Habakkuk when he says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Lord, I've heard of all the great things that you have done and all the great things that you've done for other people and for generations before me. I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of them. And then he says, Lord, repeat them in our day, in our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy, where we see and hear what all that God has done before and it causes us to cry out, God, I have seen, I've heard of all that you've done for other people. Would you do it for me, for your glory and not for my glory? And if you do, it will be all yours. If you make Doxa Church a success, it'll be all yours and not mine. If you give me that child, if you give me that husband, if you give me that spouse, if you give me that job, if you help me get out of debt, if you give me this one big thing, it turns from being just take the pressure off to God. If you do this one thing, then you get all the glory. And it won't be for me. It won't be so I can try to fill that deep hole inside the recesses of my soul. 
It will be so that you receive the glory. I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Lord, repeat them in our day, in our time, in my time. Make them known. The thing that stands out in this passage is that she wasn't just praying to the Lord back in verse 10, but in verse 12 and in verse 15, and the commentators make a point of this. It says, she continued praying before the Lord. In verse 15, she says, I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. There's a, a contrast here between her and Eli, where she wasn't just praying in the direction of the Lord. She was in the presence of God, pouring out her soul to him personally. Hannah makes her big thing God's big thing. She makes her big thing God's thing. God, this is your thing now. If, you're gonna, if something's going to happen, you have to do it, and I pray you would do it, and if you will, you get it back. You get all the glory And then the cool, the cool thing that happens is in verse 17, we see God makes Hannah's big thing his thing. So Hannah makes her big thing God's thing, and then God steps in, and he takes her thing and makes it his. And he does so, he uses the most unlikely servant, Eli, this good-for-nothing priest, this good-for-nothing pastor. Then Eli, he, he, he walks in and he was with her. He, he thinks she's drunk. He says, you need to get out of here. She says, I'm not drunk. I'm just troubled in spirit. I've been praying and pouring out my soul before the Lord. I'm not a worthless woman. I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, and God speaks through Eli, this good-for-nothing priest. Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she responds in humility and in submission. And she says, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. God used an unlikely servant like Eli to intervene into her situation and speak God's word to her. And whenever you make your big thing, God's thing, God will intervene in ways that you cannot imagine through people and through circumstances you would never dream. He will use what was like for Joseph, what was meant for evil, and he will turn around and mean it for good. It doesn't mean that, it doesn't mean that you're going to pray for health and wealth and prosperity, and that's going to happen because he answers each prayer differently. Not every barren woman who has prayed to God has he opened their womb. But every single woman who has come before God, every single person who's come before God with their one big thing and said, God, if you will take this thing and make it yours, it will be all yours. Every single person he's answered in some way. And he will use anything to make that happen. We see the beauty in Hannah, how submitted she was to God. She just says to Eli, let your servant find favor in your sight. And then we see, not only was she submitted, but we see that Hannah believed, which is really an element of submission. 
When you submit your will to God and say, God, intervene in this situation, I pray. I trust you. I'm going to walk away with a bowed, with still with a bowed knee in my heart. We see that she goes away and she all of a sudden she eats and she drinks and her face was no longer sad. Nothing had changed yet on the outside. She was not pregnant yet. She had no assurance of anything being changed. But what, what had happened that changed everything is that now, because she had given her thing to God, the burden of that being her thing was gone. She placed it in his hands and left it up to him to take it. And in doing so, it says the Lord remembered her in verse 19. Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. He answered her prayer. And here's the really cool thing. is that he didn't just answer her prayer that she would have a son and give the son back to God. But he took her prayer, being submitted to him, and he did something greater than she could have imagined. He didn't just give her a son. He gave her a son who would be called Samuel, who would be the one through whom God would bring Israel out of the dark ages through. He'd be the first one since Joshua who would speak the words of God to God's people. To such an extent, it said that none of Samuel's words fell to the ground when he spoke to Israel. He would use Samuel to anoint the king of Israel Saul, and then anoint the next king of Israel, David. So, Saul, so Samuel would be the kingmaker, and he would be the one who would anoint David, who would set up the house that Jesus would come through, the house of David. All because this ordinary woman, in her ordinary problem, with her ordinary big thing that nobody on the outside could quite understand, not even her husband, he took this one rural, uneducated, barren woman when the civil and religious leaders were far away from his heart and he used her to bring about revival in Israel through her son Samuel. When we make our thing God's thing, then he takes that and he does something greater with it. Some of you have been praying for a child. Maybe God will move like he did with Hannah and give you a child. But if not, maybe as you turn that over to him, he will give you an adopted child or children. Or he'll make you an advocate for adoption or an advocate for children. Maybe that job that you want, he won't give it to you. But maybe in the process of him working in you so that you turn it over to him, he does something even greater than you can imagine or dream. This is how God most often changes things. Through ordinary people who respond to him faithfully and with faith 
and say, God, if you will take this one thing, this one big thing that rules my life, this reoccurring sin, this burden, this sadness, this depression, this problem, if you'll take this one big thing and make it your thing, he uses that to do extraordinary things. Imagine what Myrtle Beach would look like with dozens and hundreds and thousands of people living those kind of lives that to the outside may look insignificant, but to you is incredibly significant. And God works powerfully in you and through you as you turn your one big thing over to him. And he does, you get to see him do amazing, miraculous things in you and through you. Some things that nobody will ever know. But one by one, Neighborhood by neighborhood, house by house, workplace by workplace, church by church. He does amazing things. And all of a sudden, the next thing we turn around and we look, God has moved for his glory across the Grand Strand, bringing thousands of people to himself and affecting thousands of people's lives who would otherwise not be affected through the small, ordinary people like you and me. Doing ordinary extraordinary things because we made our one thing his thing and then he does a great thing through that thank you for listening to this podcast from doxa church we are so glad that you took the time to join us today at doxa we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship jesus with their whole lives we invite you to join us Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.